Deuteronomy 7, a very fitting passage for this day in which many profane the Lord's name with their idols. Here we have God's hatred of idols manifested in his commandment of holy war and also of iconoclasm, which means the destruction of icons or images. We see God's electing grace, his call to holiness and obedience, and the comfort and blessing of obedience to his people. Here God is preparing them to enter into their inheritance. Let us hear now the words of Almighty God, inspired by his spirit and profitable for us. Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting at verse 1. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations, greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them, and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them, thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. But thus shall ye deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars, and break down their images, and cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore, that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repayeth them that hate him to their face, to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments, and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. Wherefore, it shall come to pass, if ye hearken to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he sware unto thy fathers. And he will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee. He will also bless the fruit of thy womb and the fruit of thy land thy corn and thy wine and thine oil, the increase of thy kind 
and the flocks of thy sheep, in the land which he sware unto thy fathers to give thee. Thou shalt be blessed above all people. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And the Lord will take away from thee all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which thou knowest, upon thee, but will lay them upon all that hate thee. And thou shalt consume all the people which the Lord thy God shall deliver thee. Thine eye shall have no pity upon them, neither shalt thou serve their gods, for that will be a snare unto thee. If thou shalt say in thine heart, These nations are more than I, how can I dispossess them? Thou shalt not be afraid of them, but shalt well remember what the Lord thy God did unto Pharaoh and unto all Egypt, the great temptations which thine eyes saw, and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and the stretched out arm whereby the Lord thy God brought thee out. So shall the Lord thy God do unto all the people of whom thou art afraid. Moreover, the Lord thy God will send the hornet among them, until they that are left and hide themselves from thee be destroyed. Thou shalt not be affrighted at them, for the Lord thy God is among you, a mighty God and terrible. And the Lord thy God will put out those nations before thee by little and little. Thou mayest not consume them at once, lest the beasts of the field increase upon thee. But the Lord thy God shall deliver them unto thee and shall destroy them with a mighty destruction until they be destroyed. And he shall deliver their kings into thine hand, and thou shalt destroy their name from under heaven. There shall no man be able to stand before thee until thou have destroyed them. The graven images of their gods shall ye burn with fire. Thou shalt not desire the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it unto thee, lest thou be snared therein. For it is an abomination to the Lord thy God. Neither shalt thou bring an abomination into thine house, lest thou be cursed a cursed thing like it. But thou shalt utterly detest it, and thou shalt utterly abhor it, for it is a cursed thing. Thus far the reading of the word of Almighty God from Deuteronomy chapter 7, a chapter filled with instruction. Verses 1 through 5, we have holy war and iconoclasm for God's glory and also to avoid idolatry. There is a reason for the sake of God and there is a reason for the sake of man that we must destroy idols. Notice there, verse 2, the Lord specifically prohibits, Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. These people were so wicked that to have friendly relations with them is to love those that God hates. Now, there was a time when Abraham was confederate with the ancestors of these people, but this is not that time. This is a time where they have grown to full ripeness in their wickedness, and there can be no longer any kind of love or kindness shown to them. So we see there is a time to every purpose 
under heaven. There is a time to forgive. There is a time to avenge. There is a time to love. There is a time to hate. There is a time to show mercy and there is a time to kill. And here God says, no mercy, only destroy them. Do not wish them well. Do not covenant with them. Do not intermarry with them. Destroy them. That's what God says. Let us then know God's word and not settle for a, what I would call, half-baked version of Christian ethics. You get half the way there. Show mercy. Only show mercy. Always show mercy. Well, does Scripture say that? No. There is a time to refrain from showing mercy. That's a half-baked Christian ethic. And on the other side, only show vengeance, only show vengeance, only show anger and hatred. That's half-baked. There is a time for mercy and a time for judgment. We must not merely emphasize some duties or some parts of Scripture, but rather let us pray for wisdom and discernment so that we may know when God says to show mercy and when he says not to. Notice verse 3. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. The fifth commandment says, Honor thy father and thy mother. And the rest of scripture explains for us what that means. When a girl gets married, she must have the blessing of her father. He must give her in marriage. This is taught both by the light of nature, the heathens knew this, and by the light of Scripture in passages like this. In fact, the Bible assumes in every part that the dad gives the daughter in marriage. You can read that for yourself. A girl is passive. She is given in marriage. The father is active. He gives her in marriage. So God says, don't covenant with them. Only marry in the Lord. But he also recognizes the proper chain of authority through the man, through the father of the girl. Now notice, verse 4, What will happen if you intermarry is that they will turn away thy son from following me. Here's the danger of covenanting with unbelievers. Here's the danger of friendly relations with them. Wicked, godless people draw you off to their idols. They seduce you from the true God. Your life is not just about your pleasure or your desires, or your preferences. Oh, I like him. Oh, he's so handsome. Oh, she's so beautiful. Oh, look at her. She's so sassy. Oh, I want that. God says, no, you think of me first. Even in your strong desires, you might want to marry this person, but do not do it if they seduce you from me. Notice verse 5 concerning iconoclasm. He says, ye shall destroy their altars. Now, King Josiah did this in 2 Kings 23, 6-14. The altar was the monument built up for their worship. It was their house of worship, their church, you might say, their synagogue, their mosque, whatever it is. Their house of worship, God says to do what? Destroy it, he says. What else? Break down their images. Now these were like what we have in Washington, D.C. There's a big thing pointing up called an obelisk or obelisk. 
It points up to their deities wherever they think they are somewhere, and it would often have inscriptions or images graven on it, perhaps some great deed that their false god or their demon did. He says, break them down. Now, these represented the male deity. He says to destroy all the remnants that remind you of their false gods. Monuments, memorials, pillars set up in honor of these demons. God says, break them down and destroy them. Now, God had memorials, didn't he? He had his Ten Commandments. He had the Sabbath, which he says to remember, to keep it holy. He has for us the Lord's table, the body and blood of Christ, the sign of baptism. For Israel, they had a pillar at their border. Were they supposed to break down all monuments? No. God instituted certain monuments to remind the people, Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. To remind you as a monument to my salvation, do this thing. But the heathen had monuments too. And God says, all of the reminders, destroy them. Cut down their groves, he says. This is the Asherah. It was a collection of trees meant to symbolize the female deity. You see how perverted these people were. God says, these trees that I created that these men planted or designed this way, cut them down. Wait, 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 wait. Isn't every tree a gift from God? Isn't it something that God himself, in the beginning, made that sort of life? Yes. But what's the problem? Do you remember when Paul talks about going to an unbeliever's house? And when he sets food before you, he says, go ahead and eat it, unless what? Unless he says... This was sacrificed to an idol. Then what? Can you eat it? No. God says you shall not eat meat sacrificed to an idol. Why? Isn't it meat? Isn't it good? Isn't the earth the Lord's and the fullness thereof? Yes. But when you have a monument to idolatry, God says don't even eat it. Destroy it. Have done with it. Cut down the trees. Oh, but we're going to redeem the demonic worship and adopt it into Christianity and we're going to put Christian names on it. Oh, really? God says he is a jealous God. He will not tolerate you bringing in competition into his holy worship. And this is not just the Old Testament. This is the nature of God himself. He alone legislates his worship, and therefore all false methods of worship must be destroyed. Isn't this passage appropriate for this day? When men celebrate the Christ Mass, how nice of you to take your idolatrous Mass where you worship bread and to put the name Christ on it. Because you know what else they have? They have the Lady Mass, for his mother. They have Nicholas Mass for St. Nick. And they have all kinds of Masses for all their gods. And they chose to give one to Jesus. Wasn't that nice? No. That's idolatry. Did Jesus say to celebrate his incarnation? Yes. How did he institute it? It's right there. 
the bread and the wine. That's how Christ said to institute a worship act for his incarnation. And man said, not good enough, Jesus. We need a special holy day. We need a day to honor you as our king and lawgiver. (laughs) You honor the king by defying his laws and instituting your own days. This is what he's talking about. Break down, destroy, get rid of it, burn their graven images with fire. All the trash, all the idols, all the memorials, destroy them, he says. Do you remember what Moses did when they celebrated their holy day of Jehovah that they made up and they made a golden calf? What did Moses do? He destroyed it. He burned it with fire, and those who were at the head of the idolatry were slain. The second commandment, then, not only forbids us from making images, but it requires that we destroy them. Moreover, not just images, but any form of worship not instituted by God himself. All the places where they met. All the badges, all the works of art, all the paraphernalia, all the monuments. Destroy them, he says. And we say, yeah, but. No, God. See, that's the Old Testament. When you were this big, meanie, ogre God, and then Jesus died on the cross, and now you don't care how you're worshipped, and we can institute any way we please. That's, That's called heresy. That is called telling God what to do. That is called dishonoring the king to place your own Christ on the throne. Another Christ, another God, another spirit, a different gospel. Let us then destroy and remove all monuments to idolatry with whatever power we have. And let us pray and educate other believers because you know in Israel there were many who did not follow this. And there were some who followed it halfway. And there are some who followed it all the way. And if you look at the books of kings, you'll find out which kings followed this all the way. Which kings followed it half the way. Which kings refused to follow it at all. Which kings adopted the heathen modes of worship and brought them lock, stock, and barrel into the temple. And then God will say, this is the best king. This is sort of good. And this is really bad. Based off of what? This right here. How closely did they adhere to Deuteronomy 7? How much did they care about my worship? We must not be snared by the Roman idolatry, by the pantheistic idolatry. Let us not use their institutions. Do you know the pantheists have a religious training? It's called public school. God says, don't participate. And if we had the power and responsibility and we had the government over it, we should abolish it. We should destroy it. We should cut it down to the ground. That's what God requires of godly magistrates. Destroy these monuments to their idols. Verses 6 through 16, we have holiness, election, obedience, and the blessings of those who obey. Verse 6, thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. This is why you should destroy the monuments of idolatry. God is holy. 
He alone is your lawgiver. Therefore, as a holy people, you cannot accept other lawgivers. Idols, images, and all these profane and demonic pieces of trash are unclean and sensual and must be destroyed, God says. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, not like everybody else. Don't go around trying to make yourself different from others. Let God make you different from others. He chose you. He makes you special. You don't make yourself special. Verse 8. But because, why did he choose them? But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath. Notice here, where does election start? With God's love. He loves you first. And therefore he chose you. God loved us. We did not love him. And therefore our love is responsive to his calling and choosing. God made the testament. God ratified it with an oath. God loved the forefathers and chose the children. This is how election works. And therefore he says redeemed you. Foreknowledge or loving you beforehand. Election choosing you in particular. And redeeming you. This is called the gospel. This is what God is describing. And none of it is earned by us. I note then that election is not founded upon anything in the creature, but it is in God himself. Man is not worthy to be chosen. There is no condition we can fulfill by which God will say, now I'll choose you. Rather, it's because God loved us and would keep his oath, his covenant that he made with his son. That's how we are redeemed. Let us then lose ourselves in the glory and wonder of God's electing grace. It's rooted in his eternal love. It's expressed in his calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light to be a holy people. It's applied in his testament where he adopts us. It's sealed by the redemption we have through the blood of the Lamb. Let us humble ourselves. What do we have that we've not been given? Who maketh thee to differ, the apostle asked. Well, not you. God makes you to differ. God chooses and calls. And therefore, verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy. He's our God. He is the God. He's the faithful God. He keeps his oath his testament, his mercy. Therefore, he says, know him, trust him, believe in him, obey him. Therefore, verse 11, thou shalt therefore keep the commandments of the Lord. Why? Because of God's grace, because of his blessings, because of the fear of punishment. There are multiple factors God appeals to here. If, verse 12, if ye hearken to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he sware unto thy fathers. This is not what we call a quid pro quo. Give me this, I'll pay you back that. Put in a dollar, out comes the soda. That's not what this is. In strict justice, no one would be saved. No one would be blessed. Everyone would be cursed. But God is faithful to his promise and he wants to encourage us in the good. And therefore he says, I'll bless you if you obey. The Westminster Annotations note this covenant is grounded upon his free grace. 
Therefore, in recompensing the people's obedience, he hath respect to his own mercy, not to their merits. Not what we deserve, not what we've earned, but his mercy, he says, he will keep with us. God promises, verse 13, we see every good thing, the fruit of the womb and the fruit of the land, the fruit of your cattle, all the good things people want. God says, I'll give that to you. He will take away all the sicknesses that were in Egypt, and he'll put them upon your enemies, he says. He will remove the evils, prevent the evils. I note then that Bible ethics include various sorts of motivations. Should we do good because of God's sake, theological motivations, that he's the only God? Well, yes. Because he's chosen us? Yes. Because he's called us? Yes. Should we do good and obey the Lord because of his faithfulness, his unique deity? Yes, of course. Should we glorify God because he chose our fathers, adopted us, and continues faithful to his word? Yes. Should we fear God so that we can be blessed and have good things in this life? Yes. Should we fear God and do his will to avoid being judged and cursed in this life and in the world to come? Yes. Do you see, Christian ethics is not one single answer, is it? Just obey God for this reason alone. Well, there may be a primary reason for the glory of God. Yes, that's true. There may be a ranking of priorities, but are all priorities on the table in God's book? Yes. God appeals to all kinds of motivations. God is merciful. God condescends to us. Let us then recognize and utilize God's scheme of motivations. We can do this as parents as well, imitating God. Should your children obey you because it's right? Yes. But what else does Paul say? That it may go well with you and you may live long upon the earth. Wait a second. I thought I was just supposed to do it because it's right. No. That's true, you should primarily do it because it's right, but you should also do it so that you can be blessed. God appeals to both. Notice verse 16, God repeats, Thine eye shall have no pity upon them when you destroy and devour these nations I'm putting out before you. Don't feel sorry for them, he says. The Geneva Bible notes say, We should not be merciful when God commands severity. How many civil magistrates are merciful when God says, be severe? You have a man who's murdered someone. You want to give them a second chance. You want to be merciful, but what does God say? He who taketh the life of man shall surely be put to death. Surely. No doubt. This is your duty. Oh, but what if we can fix him? Shut up. Do what God says. Don't show mercy when God says to be severe. They are a snare, he says. If you don't deal with them, as I said, they'll be like a trap. A means, an occasion for your ruin and perdition. Do you know what happens when magistrates are merciful to criminals? Do you know what happens? Our money goes away because we have to pay for them to sit and rot in jail. And if they get back out on the streets, do they clean up? Are they now Mr. Sparkle Angel now that they've been in the penitentiary? No. 
They're Mr. Rapes a lot, Mr. Murders a lot, Mr. Robs a lot. And who has to suffer? The criminal? No. The people that the criminal wrongs. It's a snare. This false mercy is a snare. So God says, don't deal with them in mercy. Deal with them according to my justice. Verses 17 through 24, the Lord reminds them of his former providences in order to ward off their fears. He talks about a conversation in their heart in verse 17. You'll say something. You'll have a dialogue that leads you to fear. He says in verse 18, Thou shalt not be afraid of them, but shalt well remember. Remembering, you shall remember, he says. Memory over fear. Truth over circumstances. This is what he's telling them. I have shown you my power. I have shown you in the past, and therefore I will keep my power in the future for your good. God will do something to these people you're afraid of, he says, just as I did to Egypt. Do you remember what I did to them? I'll do the same to the Canaanites, he says. God can send hornets against our adversaries. He rules over all. The sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his will, nor a hair of your head fall to the ground unless God determines it to be so. Why should we be afraid? For the Lord thy God is among you a mighty and a terrible God. That doesn't mean he's bad at his job, by the way. That means he induces terror in those who rightly understand him. And one day everyone will rightly understand. Stonewall Jackson said, Fear God and you need fear no man. Let us then fear God. Let us know the terror of the Lord and therefore persuade men. Let us live before his face, doing his will, walking in his ways. God puts them out little by little, verse 22 tells us. Judges 3 tells us also why he did this. Not just so the beasts wouldn't come in, but so that their children would learn war. God wanted them to be a military people, a fighting people. And if all the Canaanites were driven out and there were no more wars for them, what would they become? Lazy indolent, soft, incapable of working or fighting. So God says, I'm not driving them out all at once. I'll make you learn war. Verse 23, you shall destroy them with a mighty destruction or the Lord will destroy them with a mighty destruction until they be destroyed. Count the number of times that the word destroyed is used. God means business. He's going to completely and utterly destroy them. The battle belongs to the Lord. When he sees fit, he will deliver our enemies to be destroyed by us. We'll sing about this in Psalm 89. God will bring all of the enemies of Christ before his face and destroy them right in front of him. That's what God promised here. Thou shalt destroy their name from under heaven, he says, so that they will be buried in oblivion like a body in a tomb. And if their stench ever comes up, it will only be to sicken us. God then reiterates in verses 25 and 26 the command and duty of iconoclasm rooted in God's jealousy and his hatred 
and the danger that idols pose to men. Verse 25, the graven images of their gods shall ye burn with fire, not just thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, but also thou shalt destroy the graven images that have been made. That's what the second commandment requires, the destruction of images. Now, if you read the early church fathers, you find out one thing very quickly. The Romans found fault with Christians. Why don't you have any images? Do you know what their answer was? Well, we actually do. No, that wasn't their answer. Their answer is, an image is made by an artist, isn't it? Somebody has to carve that, paint that, whatever it is, right? Somebody has to sculpt that image or paint the image or whatever. Who's greater, the image or the artist? Well, it's the artist, right? The creator is greater than the creature, always. So therefore, they argued, do you worship artists? No, you don't, of course. Why then would you worship their works? Why would you show honor to something that is fake? It's not a real snake. It's not a real man. It's not a real woman. It's an image. It's stone. It's carved. It's wood, whatever. Why would you worship that? You know what that is? That's the inversion of the order of nature. You worship the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forevermore. You're an idol worshiper. Lactantius said, where there is an image, there is no religion. Where you see an image, no religion. Let me ask you a question. What do you see around Christmas? Image after image after image. Images supposedly of the Son of God. Images of the Virgin to whom they offer acts of worship and devotion that they pray to. Images of Saint Nick that they've canonized and they bow before him and they think he's divine and knows your thoughts. He knows whether you've been good or whether you've been bad. And he can travel to all places and bless you for your good works. <gasps> different gospel, different Christ, different God. The graven images of their gods, he says, you shall burn them with fire. Don't put them in a warehouse. Don't put them in a museum. Destroy them, he says. Lest thou be snared therein. It's a trap. Images are a trap. False worship is a trap. All their means of worshiping their gods are a trap. They're going to snare you and bring you down to idolatry and therefore destroy them. Diodati says, subtly, insensibly, and unawares, lured and entangled in some idolatry, and by that means brought within the compass of punishment for it. They set the snare. You don't think it's that bad, so you kind of wander over in it until you're trapped, and you can't get out, and you're destroyed. That's what he's saying. Do you think Satan comes with a pitchfork and his tail sticking up, and he's all red all over and says, Hey, I want you to burn in hell. Come worship these idols with me. Is that what he does? No. He appears as an angel of light, we'll see in 2 Corinthians 11. I have ministers of righteousness. These things are good for your devotion. They will enable you to be oh so humble if you bow before the angels. Colossians 2 voluntary humility, self-imposed, pushing yourself down. Does that do you any good to destroy the flesh, Paul says? No, of course not. That is your will worship. 
not offered at God's will, but according to man's will. It's a snare. It's a trap. Subtly, he brings you over as he brought Eve over until he traps you in his idolatry. Large portions of mankind are trapped in idolatry, and guess what? They think it pleases God. So can you get them out if they think it pleases God? No, they're trapped. They can't get out. They're there under Satan's dominion. And our job is to warn them, don't go, don't go there, don't get trapped. Here, read, in this book it says, worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. You're bowing before a painting, a statue. Come, come away, come out of Babylon. Verse 25, not only is it a snare to you, for it is an abomination to the Lord thy God. God hates everything that was used in idolatry. All the materials, all the forms, all the worship that's offered, all the groves, all the obelisks, all the images, all the paintings, all the badges. He hates it. And he says that if you use them, you'll be a cursed thing like them. You take the material off of that burnt image, the gold that melted off, and you bring it into your house and say, Ah, I got some money. And God says, you'll be cursed. That monument was to be destroyed, not so that you could be enriched. You will become like that cursed thing, lest thou be a cursed thing like it. We must not, we shall not take into our worship those manners of worship that God has not commanded, lest we be destroyed together with the idols. And thus far, the explanation of God's holy word.